you're tuned in to the official podcast of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy. We're a public policy research organization and leadership community founded on the values of equality, freedom, and a more perfect union. Our namesake is former Congressman Joseph Rainey, who was born enslaved and was the first black American to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. The Rainey Center is a place that fosters dialogue on actionable solutions to America's challenges while amplifying the voices of women, minorities, and mavericks in public policymaking. To learn more about us, we hope you visit www.rainycenter.org. My name is Sarah Hunt, and I'm proud to be the CEO and president of the Rainey Center. We're glad that you've tuned in today, and we hope that you leave this episode, having learned something from our guests about politics, policy, and journalists, and the key role that the press plays in our democracy. We have two incredible guests here today who have incredible experiences in both local journalism, national journalism, politics, and policy. They can give you wonderful insights on how policymakers and journalists interact to help the public understand their government and what's happening in this world and how the policies being considered might affect you in your life. First, we've got Lisa Ledniser, who is a multi-platform editor and Sunday magazine writer at the Washington Post. In addition to editing print and online stories, she edits cybersecurity, energy, health, and financial 202 and about us newsletters at the Washington Post. In 1998, she shared in the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for coverage of the 1997 Red River Floods and edited one of the stories about U.S. Senate candidate Roy Moore, part of the post-2018 Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting. Chuck McCutcheon is currently an editor for Bloomberg Industry Group's Energy and Environment Desk. Chuck has covered Washington, D.C. since 1995. God bless you, Chuck. (laughs) He also has worked for National Journal, Congressional Quarterly, and Newhouse News Service. He's written books on climate change, political jargon, Congress, and nuclear waste. So here you've got an incredible wonk as well as a journalist, I guarantee you that Chuck probably knows more about those policy areas than many of those with graduate degrees in it working in policy in D.C. It's simply what happens when you're a journalist, and I hope that's something we'll talk about more, too. Thank you both so much for making time to come and be here with me today. And I'd like to get started with a fun icebreaker question. Now that we've come through this world upending COVID-19 pandemic, and we've seen so many other changes over the past five years, including in politics, technology, and now healthcare with COVID, I'd like to hear from each of you what has happened or what is something that has really changed and influenced your life over the last five years. Chuck, you want to go first? (laughs) Sure. Well, in the last five years, um, I've been working for a wire service, Bloomberg, um, but I've also, um, which which puts uh, a very heavy premium on on breaking news and getting the story out first, but at the same time, expects those stories to be incredibly detailed and and, and be forward-looking and to have a lot of nuance and to get all sides. And so what I've learned to do in the last five years is um, either as a reporter or an editor, not to just get an assignment and then start reading about it, 
but to be more of an in, in anticipatory mode to realize what is going to be coming up and what is going to be on the agenda and backgrounding myself on it and thinking of what um, the stories are that people want to know about these things and the questions that people want to have asked and answered about them. And so um, I would say the last five years, I spend a lot more of my time reading uh, Congressional Research Service reports, GAO reports, backgrounders, what corporate white papers, um, websites, um, anything that kind of provides a broad panoply of information. In the past five years, we have gone through a norm-shattering presidency. And as a result of that, and as a result of uh, Donald Trump's unconventional approach to his job, uh, we at the Post have had to uh, be in, again, anticipatory mode as much as possible. But we've also had to, at the same time, sort of what Chuck was saying, really think about the analysis portion of stories and really dig down into issues um, because there was just so much coming at us all the time. And so I think the past five years for me as a journalist have been pretty exhausting. And uh, now that Joe Biden is president, there does seem to be sort of a return to the way the presidency has been in the past before Donald Trump became president. And that also has been an adjustment because at least where I am uh, at the post on, on the multi-platform desk, there hasn't been the same kind of uh, river of stories, I guess, to edit. There's, there are still a lot of stories, um, but they're different kinds of stories. And so it's, it's been a little bit of an adjustment. Definitely having a president who announces major policy changes on Twitter must have been a significant adjustment for the press corps. I think so. I mean, we have the tw- the post is a 24-7 operation. And so reporters are, are always on call, even when they're asleep, they're always on call. Um, there were a couple of nights where I had to, or I, I found myself, uh, staying very, very late to edit stories, especially when um, when Trump announced he had the coronavirus that came over very late. And so I was up till the wee hours of the morning, just editing the first big story to go online, trying to put as much context in there as possible, let people know what was going on. And if you have a lot of nights like those, it just gets exhausting. Oh, I, I can imagine. <laughs> Chuck, do you stay up late reading those GAO reports? Yeah, um, but getting back to Lisa's point about Trump, and I think that this is true no matter who's president, is I think it's been important. uh, Well, it's become especially important in the last five years, but it's always been important to sort of have to educate people about how government works. Um, I mean, a president is not a king. He or she does not rule by absolute decree. You know, there are co-equal branches of government that can change, modify, overturn. Um, There's a whole rulemaking process that my uh, shop deals with in particular with coming up with regulations, which have to go through a long, extensive 
um, review process and comment process before they're issued. And so um, uh, I, I, I just think that it's important for people who are not in the media to understand, and I'm sure your audience does, that, um, you know, just because um, a politician says it doesn't necessarily make it so. Absolutely. Chuck, do you want to explain what the GAO is? Not everyone listening might know. Yeah, uh, it's called the Government Accountability Office. They are the invest- it used to be called the General Accounting Office. They are the investigative arm of Congress. Mm-hmm. Basically, if a uh, lawmaker wants uh, something looked at, um, he or she will request a GAO study. They have uh, hundreds and hundreds of very experienced investigators and researchers all over the country that look into everything from, is there any waste and fraud in a certain program? Or, you know, is a certain program being run effectively? Or, um, you know, how does such and such uh, an agency compare to other agencies? They do a lot of very detailed work. And the nice thing about them is that um, they really make a conscious attempt to write, put their reports in plain English, um, which makes them very valuable. Uh, And the CRS, which I mentioned earlier in my comments, is the Congressional Research Service, which is another agency that does research work for Congress. They do a lot of background information on the history of legislation, um, looking at bills, um, pointing up issues in things that Congress may need to be aware of. And until recently, their reports were not publicly available but they're now publicly available on congress.gov and they are another wonderful resource. So if that was interesting to any of the listeners, Chuck has written a book where he explains such jargon to everyone. It's called dog whistles, walkbacks and Washington handshakes decoding the jargon slang and bluster of American political speech. It's available on Amazon. And I think you have a website for the book too, Chuck. Is do you, is that true? Or am I Yeah, it's, it's dogwhistlebook, all one word, dot com. So if you want to learn uh, more, <clears throat> more about some of these acronyms or terms that you might hear uh, in the news, uh, you can go and pick up Chuck's book. Uh, it's a great primer for an everyday American to, to dive in and, and <clears throat> learn more about what the talking heads on TV really mean when they say something. So I want to kind of think, start getting back to thinking, you know, how do you each view your role as a journalist and the role of the press in the policymaking process and in democracy? And what do you think is something you wish, you know, your average reader or your fellow citizen knew about the work that you do? You know, what are the important things that they need to know that might help them, you know, understand your work and how that helps give them more information and better context for their world and for participating in their government. I can take the second uh, part of that first, if I may. The one thing I actually wish people did understand is the incredible effort that uh, reporters, editors, everyone at a newspaper, videographers, puts into the work. Journalism is what I consider a very noble calling. Um, It is not 
the most, it is not the easiest job, uh, even at the best of times. And so it takes people who are really, really committed to their jobs, really committed to the issues, really committed to the public uh, to explain and inform them in ways that will help them be better citizens. And I don't know that that is necessarily understood outside the uh, the sort of northeast corridor of of um, the press uh, where where the press where the the majority press operates. And so that's sort of uh, what I wish people would understand more. Again, that there's just a lot of effort at fact checking and getting it right and making it understandable that I don't necessarily uh, think is understood. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would also say that the common misconception is that um, we all have um, a political or an ideological agenda. Um, I take my uh, nine ideology and non-bias very seriously. And I think any journalist worth their salt um, would say the same. I, I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm a believer in what some consider the outmoded concept of objectivity, which I just think means um, talking to everyone and getting all sides and then making interpretations um, based on what you've gathered about what your the closest version, available version of the truth is. It does not mean... Um, giving equal weight in the story um, to one side. I mean, there's a famous quote, if it's raining out, it's not up to the journalist to say that one side says it's raining and one side says it's sunny. Um, It's up to the journalist to stick his or her head out the window and find out. And I, I subscribe to that credo. So building on that, Chuck, what was it like to be a journalist committed to those traditional journalistic principles, objectivity, gathering as much information as possible, talking to many people of different perspectives. And then you're at an outlet whose name is the same last name as your founder who is running for president. Can you share with us some of the dynamics around that that you experienced last year? Yeah, so I think that during the time that our owner was running for president, uh, I asked reporters if they had encountered any um, skepticism or opposition uh, from any politicians in Congress about whether they could be objective. And my understanding is that there was only one who uh, who had expressed any reservations. I mean, I think that, um, you know, our reporters are some of the best in town and they know the people that they're covering so well that um, the people that they're covering understand who we are, what we do. And um, I think really value the fact that um, we are, uh, we are seen as such a credible nonpartisan source uh, of information. And so I'm not going to say that that's true for the media as a whole in terms of, um, you know, having their credibility question. But I know that in my case, 
it it really wasn't an issue. Lisa, you had a similar situation at the Washington Post with controversy between the Post's parent owner, Jeff Bezos, and the president as well, you know, with the president frequently attacking, you know, the Washington Post and the tagline, democracy dies in darkness. Can you talk about how all of that affected your work? Honestly, it did not affect my work that much um, because, again, our mission, at least where I am on the multi-platform desk, is to do the best editing jobs on stories that we can and to make sure they adhere to post style and make sure that they're accurate and fair and that things haven't slipped through. And so... We weren't, we knew obviously what the president was saying about our owner, but as far as news coverage, that didn't affect what we I think that's really helpful for people to understand and to realize that, you know, journalists like Chuck and Lisa, you know, adhere to a set of, of principles and professional guidelines that apply regardless of controversies that might be swirling around their outlets. I do ha- want to talk to you both about how outlets have become politicized over the last decade. People viewing certain outlets, uh, certain publications as conservative or liberal or middle of the road. Can you describe what it's been like over the course of your careers to watch that develop to the place where it is today? And do you have any thoughts on, you know, what might need to be done to get our information ecosystem in a healthier place? Throughout my career, I've seen this, um, and, and it's understandable, this idea that because a newspaper has an editorial page and will write editorials in support of or against a certain topic, that, um, that, that every reporter on the staff is autom- and editor is automatically aligned with that perspective. That that's not the case. There's a real, at, at every place I've ever worked with an editorial staff, there is a real conscious division of uh, separation. There is a wall where the editorial writers, um, you know, they don't talk to reporters. They don't tell them what they're working on. They come up with their conclusions independently. Um, you know, I covered some issues that my paper editorialized against but in no way, shape, or form did the newspaper um, ever, and Sarah, it was the Albuquerque Journal, in case you're wondering, did the paper ever say, don't write about this, or could you go a little easy on that person? Now, that definitely happens. But again, I, I, I really think that the credible media, um, whether it's print or online or over the air or something like that, um, really does take that to heart. But, but again, there is this confusion about the fact of where does news gathering end and editorializing begin that we in the media just have to do a better job of being conscious of and uh, making people aware of the distinction. The other thing I would add is I wonder sometimes when people accuse newspapers or I should say news organizations of of uh, being liberal or conservative or whatever, if what they're really upset at is the topics that that news organization chooses to cover. 
there, we all know that there is a racial reckoning in this country and there has been a real effort to get underrepresented people's stories and um, uh, bylines into news organizations and into news coverage. And there are people who are upset about that and who say that either or feel that those stories shouldn't be covered or that they're played too big or something or other. And so that might lead them to say, well, you know, the, the post or, or whatever organization is doing all these stories about the Tulsa, the, the hundredth commemoration of the Tulsa race massacre. Um, and they might look at that and say, well, that means that that publication is liberal. And why are they writing about that? And why are they not writing about this other issue? And it's not just with, with race. It can be anything. I'm not sure that every person who is on the center right would look at, at coverage of something like the Tulsa race massacre and say, this outlet is covering racial issues or this outlet is covering the protests last summer. Therefore, it's liberal. But I, I think it, 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 you know, some people might. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, just as, you know, some on the left might look at how a, a news outlet covers some of the issues around elections and democracy and voting that we're seeing now um, and say, okay, maybe they're a conservative outlet, depending oh. on how they cover those topics or what part of those topics they choose to cover. That, that is true. I mean, I remember years and years ago when I was a reporter at the Oregonian in Portland, Oregon, um, there was a candidate running against, um, there was a, a Republican running against the Democrat, uh, John Kitzhaber, for governor. And I forget what the issue was, but uh, the, the newspaper had done a, a real thorough investigative look at Kitzhaber's opponent. And I remember going to some kind of campaign event for that person. And someone approached me once they realized I worked at the Oregonian and said, well, why don't you investigate the governor? Why don't you do, you know, why don't, why don't you write these kinds of stories about the governor? And there was this sort of belief that, well, if you're writing one quote, bad unquote thing about one candidate, then you should do that for the other. And so I think there's this, again, there's just this real misconception of how journalists operate and what they focus on and whether they're biased or unbiased. And that was sort of very eye-opening to me that I still remember it uh, all these years later. One of the things that is interesting to me about both of you, that is also not uncommon with journalists who come to DC or the Northeast Corridor, is you both mentioned, Chuck, I work for the Albuquerque Journal. And Lisa said, I work for the Oregonian. And interestingly enough, both New Mexico and Oregon are amazing states where I once lived myself. How does your time working for local or regional outlets inform the work that you do today? Oh, wow. I draw upon it all the time, particularly with the subjects that I handle now with energy and environment. I mean, I covered the interior department and the energy department. Uh, a lot when I was a reporter in New Mexico, and I handle a lot of stories involving those agencies today. I still with I still deal with some of my contacts of people I know back in New Mexico who are still sources for us on on stories. And 
Um, you know, I, I, I use a lot of my training on a whole variety of issues on, you know, public lands, oil and gas, uh, nuclear, nuclear stuff um, to, to sort of inform how I do my job now. And I think it really, for me, um, makes me just look at stories in a different way. For instance, if there's uh, a story about land rights in the West and grazing rights, which is a, a big issue out there, then I'll tend to look at stories and make sure that we are getting all sides of the issue and not just the sides of the people who are saying things like, you know, we need to free these lands, we need to free federal lands, it's, it's, uh, these lands are ours to make sure that our stories are reflecting what is the real agenda here, what's, what's really going on. And I think it also just makes me much more aware of, you know, when we're giving short shrift to stories from around the country. And short shrift is actually not quite the right word I'm looking for, but when we're writing stories from around the country, you know, what stories are we choosing to write? And are there other stories besides those that we should choose to write? Or is there some issue brewing uh, at any place that I've ever lived that maybe we should be writing about? Yeah. And it's not just um, a lot of covering local news. I mean, on our staff, we deal with a lot of legal stuff. We have a fair number of journalists who are lawyers who have had or have had extensive legal training, you know, I worked with a woman who covered um, air pollution and air quality issues, and she had a, a master's degree in chemistry. And so, I, I mean, I think journalism has become such a, for, for all of its, for all the credibility crisis that it's in, it's still a profession that an awful lot of really talented people want to go into and to get the best jobs and, and do the best work, you have to develop a lot of specialized training and I think that's I think that's becoming increasingly truer now than when Lisa and I um, who are classmates at Northwestern went to school we were taught more to be generalists and now I think there is an increasing um, emphasis on um, on specialization that that I think is is very positive that's really interesting uh, if you were to say something to young aspiring, journalists and content creators that might be out there in our audience. What is the top professional advice you would give them? Uh, I know Lisa, you are a a professor of journalism at university of Maryland. Um, You teach some courses there. So you probably think about that all the time, but what are the most important things that you would want to share the wisdom of all your experience with an aspiring journalist? I think the first piece of advice I'd give probably goes for any career, but it's be flexible, be nimble, be willing to learn. Uh, You can learn new skills at any age and in any situation. Um, But the people who tend to succeed in this business are those who, again, are just willing to try new things, to move new places I have worked with other journalists in 
other at, in other media markets who just are completely unwilling to move. They've sort of found their place. And if things go south for them at that newspaper or news organization, then they're just, they're not willing to pick up the move. They just want to stay. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that if you do, your career opportunities will be limited. My husband and I moved out to D.C. fairly late in our careers. He actually made a career switch, and I made somewhat of a career switch. I had been in marketing and communications after years in journalism, and so I went back to journalism. But we moved out here at a time in our lives when most people don't move out east. They'll they'll move the opposite direction. But we were willing to do it and it has paid off for both of us. And so I think that that is just really the number one thing is is to be flexible because I've seen people who are not flexible just um, just get pushed out or pushed aside. Chuck, how about you? Yeah, I would echo everything Lisa said. I think flexibility is key. I also think that um, if you're a young journalist, you should write as much as possible. And thankfully the internet um, has a ton of outlets that you can do where you can do that. Um, you may not make any money whatsoever, but um, the thing that gets you hired really more than anything else are clips and showing that you have written something. And um, in some, to some extent, it almost doesn't matter where you get those clips as much as that you have them. And so the key then is just to get them and it's so easy now to freelance. There's all kinds of opportunities to do all sorts of different kinds of writing that I would just encourage people to get out there, start writing and start amassing clips. I think that's great advice from both of you. Do either of you have thoughts for readers, you know, the, your average American on how they should be evaluating the news when they take it in? And what they should be looking for when they're considering, you know, what services they want to subscribe to or what TV shows to watch in terms of how the journalists involved present information and, you know, what should they also be looking for from the news to help them be a better citizen? Well, of course, my recommendation would be everyone should subscribe to the Washington Post. Um, and not just because I work there, it is, it really is a great newspaper. I'm just astonished at, and I should say news organization, because of course we have a robust digital and video presence, but I'm just astonished at the breadth of topics and issues that we cover. Uh, I get to edit a lot of different kinds of stories. And, and again, I'm, I'm just amazed. We seem to have people everywhere all the time, but as far as, you know, what to, what, I guess what to look for in news and uh, programs to watch. I'd say, you know, the trusted news sources are always the best to refer to. It doesn't mean that you can't read, you can't read publications with a say conservative agenda or a liberal agenda or a libertarian agenda. Just be very aware that that's, you're not getting the whole story. I mean, there's always another side. And so just be a critical reader and know that if you read at least one good trusted news source a day whose reporters are 
well-informed and it shines through in their writing, then that will help you become a, a good citizen. Once again, I'm in the position of echoing everything um, Lisa has said up to and including reading the Washington Post. Uh, apart from specific outlets, I think that um, there are a lot of different news organizations that put out tests for whether something is quote unquote fake news. And you can always start by going to a fact checking website like PolitiFact, which people accuse of having a liberal bias, but I think actually um, does incredible work and is active in a number of local markets now, as well as nationally. But I think that, you know, readers should look at or viewers should look at, does the story have diversity of voices? Who, Who are those voices? Who are the people? Are they credible? You can Google them to see if their credentials really are what they say they are. And it's pretty easy in this day and age to see whether a politician is just regurgitating talking points or is really, really saying what he or she means. You can often find if someone is just going and repeating rote talking points, a copy of those talking points out there somewhere on the internet. So I would just encourage people to keep those things in mind. Sometimes I think journalists are a little mysterious to people who aren't journalists. (laughs) Uh, Is there anything else that you, you two, either of you would like to say about that might help break down some of that mystery and help journalism feel more accessible to uh, your neighbors? There are uh, some really great documentaries about how the news is put together um, that if people really want to understand how the news ecosystem works. Those are good documentaries to watch. But aside from that, I think the main thing I would really encourage people is to do everything you can to be informed. That doesn't mean you have to monitor the news 24-7. No one can really ask people to do that. But just to read as much as possible. And, And I'd also really encourage people to read publications that they don't necessarily agree with that they don't naturally gravitate toward just to see what people of different ideological stripes think about things and what they're, they may be reading. Um, Because again, it's, it's really always helpful to get a full sense of how people think and what they think about. Um, But definitely, you know, the, the, primary thing I, I'd suggest is get a subscription to a trusted news source and just start reading it. Yeah. And uh, I would echo that. And I would encourage people watch the movie Spotlight. It's a wonderful gripping movie and, and it features journalists at the Boston Globe, you know, dealing with a priest sex scandal um, and some of them uh, devout Catholics grappling with the implications of reporting that story. And it does a brilliant job of piecing together how reporters work, how they follow leads, how they just don't make sweeping assumptions based on a single interview, how they painstakingly gather information. Um, I I think that that movie um, uh, is really the closest thing to uh, uh, something that every American should watch uh, if they want to understand journalism. Uh, that's out there. 
What is something that both of you are going to do to have fun today? Are you going to read some more GAO reports, Chuck? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but I'm going to put them down. Um, so Thursdays in our house is pasta night. Every uh, Thursday night, my wife and I, um, we cook spaghetti. And we put on Louis Prima, who was a great 1940s and 50s band leader. And um, we blast his music and uh, eat spaghetti and have a couple of glasses of wine. I'll be right over. <laughs> that sounds amazing. What about you, Lisa? Oh, that sounds like such a fun evening. So after we finish this podcast, I'm going to start my shift for the Washington Post. I work nights from Sunday through Thursday. But I'm also getting ready to go out of town this weekend. And so I just pulled a uh, berry tart from the oven. And as we are recording, I am smelling strawberry bread that is about to come out of the oven in about <laughs> minutes. And so I'm I'll also be right over to your house. <laughs> I'm just going to revel in the fact that my house smells like baked goods right now. <laughs> Death by carbs. Yes, on this rainy, depressing day. I know your readers are I know your listeners, I'm sorry, can't uh, see outside right now, but we are recording on a really cloudy, gloomy day. <laughs> Smelling bread, uh quick bread downstairs. With flash flood warnings. Absolutely. Like it's don't leave the house flash flood warning. Right. Absolutely. You know, perhaps it's the end times. <laughs> pandemic and now flood (laughs) yeah and lisa you have some great books on food including a recipe book do you want to tell everyone about those sure i I have uh co-written two books uh one is called extreme barbecue it was published by chronicle books it is unfortunately out of print but uh we sold about ten thousand copies and it's about people wacky people just out there so everyone knows that's a lot of copies, actually. Thank you. It was a, good, <laughs> a lot of copies. Yeah, it was a good first printing. So it's about people who, wacky people, we have a whole bunch of barbecue recipes in there. And then um, the second one I was involved in was uh, an essay collection called Sister Writer Eaters. And it's a, a woman from all around the country, wrote about food and contributed recipes. They're just really essays about food and their relationships to food. And we have some really well-known people who contributed to that. And I, I was one of the essayists It came out a couple of years ago. And it was published by Griffith Moon. Again, it was just a real fun thing for me to be a part of. But those are the uh, those are the two books I've contributed to. That's great. So those are, those are two books from Lisa to check out, even if they're out of print. Amazon and eBay provide. So yeah. go check those out. Uh, speaking of books, we're going into a long holiday weekend. I know you're both readers. Do you have a book that's on your list that you're picking up over the weekend or or that you are working your way through? I actually have two. Um, I am on an espionage uh, fiction book kick. And so I've been reading a bunch of John le Carré. And so I finished Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People, and now I am reading The Honorable Schoolboy. And I read a little bit every night, and I'm looking for some uninterrupted time to finish that. I'm also going to dive into Where the Crawdads Sing uh, by Delia Owens. I think I got that title right. Um, So those are the two things I'll be reading. 
and a lot of old New Yorker magazines that seem to pile up. Yes, I, I think my New Yorker backload is about at the six inch level right now myself. So I only be- read it for the cartoons. <laughs> Which is a great reason to read it. I'm finishing John Hodgman's Medallion Status. It's a book of comic essays. When I finish that, my intention is to uh, pick up uh, actually a a journalism book by um, Jill Abramson, the former editor of the New York Times, who kind of writes about um, the emergence of, I think she looks at the Post, BuzzFeed, and some other outlets and sort of tracing how how they've adapted or um, tried to change in this new media landscape. Those all sound like great recommendations for everyone. This was a fun conversation. Thank you both so much. Thanks again, Sarah. Bye. I hope also all of you out there will plug into our work here at the Rainy Center by subscribing to our newsletter and following us on social media. Check out our website at www.rainycenter.org. And you can do those things uh, through our site, signing up for the newsletter and following our social media. Also, drop us a note if you've heard something you like today or you have any further questions. We'd certainly love to hear from you. From all of us here at Rainy Center, from the team, thank you for listening. And again, thank you to our speakers.